Okay, if you want to join me back in the book of Numbers, chapter 20, we'll see, Lord willing, tonight if we can cover chapters 20 and, and 21. It's been a little bit of time, a few weeks here, since we've been in the book of Numbers together. We uh, had communion together, uh, and then also, of course, then did the outreach together last week, so we weren't here. So it's been a few weeks since we've been in our study in Numbers together, but uh, we pick up here in the 20th chapter as we continue on and just a little interesting uh, side note here uh, as we come to numbers chapter 20 basically at this point now uh, in the wilderness journey of the children of israel remember the book of numbers basically records for us their failure to go into the land and then that uh, consequence of 40 years one year for every one of the days that they were in spying out the land uh, they would as a consequence the older generation until all of them died off uh, wander around the wilderness because of their unbelief and their lack of obedience to go in and to take possession of the land that God intended them for as we come to chapter 20 now uh, really at this point chronologically we've passed over about 38 years uh, thus far and as we come to chapter 20 verse 1 it tells us the children of Israel the whole congregation came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month and the people stayed in Kadesh now when that references there the first month we know chronologically from some other scriptures and accounts that's a reference actually to the first month of the 40th year so from this point until the end of the book of Numbers, really we're now looking at some aspects of really the last year or so of this wilderness journey uh, we have recorded for us, which kind of is an insightful thing when you think about, uh, really there is not a whole lot, if you think about, recorded, that could be recorded, of what transpired over 40 years of wandering around in the wilderness as that consequence of their unbelief and their lack of obedience to go in and to follow God's plan and purpose for their life. Not much is really recorded or mentioned, just a few occurrences. It's almost as if God purposely by his silence is almost trying to indicate there's very little to report. Uh, that as they just wandered around and did not uh, really uh, fulfill God's original plan for them and were somewhat in a state of just wandering around aimlessly, there really wasn't a whole lot uh, that transpired that God really felt necessary that was really worth discussing. And, and I can't help but to think that somehow as Christians, when we... Uh, enter into times when we don't in faith walk forward into the things that God has for us as we maybe shrink back in unbelief or rather than going into the you know maturity of a spirit-filled life as we should like the promised land of Canaan depicts that life in the spirit overcoming enemies and you know taking territory that God wants to give to us and experiencing God's best and highest ideal uh, when we're just sort of wandering around in the wilderness and not moving forward uh, tragically basically God says you know that's that's kind of really a sense a lot of wasted time and wasted years and there's not a whole lot to report because not much really worth discussing happens it's kind of lost time in a lot of ways now God was gracious to them he preserved them he took care of them in the midst of that time but it's interesting how the Bible is quite silent over how much it could have recorded and notice here it tells us where they now come to in the first month of that 40th year verse 1 says they now come to Kadesh now that should be a, a, a reminder there Kadesh interestingly enough 
Remember Kadesh Barnea and the story of the spies? And, and it is actually this very location that they were at four decades ago where they actually initially first started and the place where they failed at in going in the first time to conquer and to take over the land. So what happens here? They wander around in the wilderness and what does God do? He brings them back to the exact same place they started. He brings them back to exactly where they once were before. They took their little detour and wandered around for a while and learned some hard lessons in the wilderness. Again, certainly it was character shaping and God developed things, but God ultimately brings them back to the exact same spot that they were before. And so often that is so true of the spiritual life that many times, you know, we take our little detours, but, but so often God always brings us back to deal with the very same thing that many times maybe we failed in years prior or a season before God brings us right back and says, look, uh, you're not going to escape this. I'm going to bring you right back to where you started, put you right back where you were before. And, and, and we're again, we're going to go at this again here. And he brings them back now. The tragedy, like I said, is not much progress has happened uh, and they're not that much further along. They're back exactly where they started once before. After 40 years, not much progress. And I'll tell you something, that's always a really sad testimony in the spiritual life, in our journey with the Lord, that after he delivers us out of Egypt and he sets us free from the world and sin and slavery, uh, that rather than going into the fullness of the Christian life that God intends and taking territory and growing and experiencing God's best, it's really a sad testament at times as Christians if all we are is 10, 20, 30, 40 months, 40 years later, really just at the same spot where we first started and we've made very little progress at all. And we've never gone much further. We've kind of just floundered around in, in spiritual immaturity and it's a really sad testament if we're not much further along, especially after 40 years. Uh, and yet here it's interesting, God brings them back. Now it must have been a very uh, interesting thing for Moses even as well as he's coming back to Kadesh thinking, oh no, not this place again. I wonder if there was almost a, you know, a, a nervousness that crept over him. Here we are back at Kadesh again, once again, close to the border. And it's at that time, verse one says that during that occasion that Miriam died there and was buried. So at this point, Moses's older sister, Miriam, She's probably somewhere uh, just under uh, 130 years old. We can't be exactly certain how old she is at this point, but if she was somewhere around maybe you know, 7 to 15 years old initially when she put the uh, basket into the river, Moses, her younger brother, uh, at this point that would have her somewhere in that time frame chronologically. And she is a part of the older generation, as God promised before they went in, would die off. So we now come to the end of Miriam's life. Uh, and verse 2 says, Now there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together against Moses and Aaron. So again, keep in mind here, verse 2, and as we move forward, this is now the younger generation. As we see by Miriam, and, and Aaron will die in this chapter as well and, and go home to be with the Lord. Ultimately, Moses will uh, pass away as well. And in later chapters, we'll see the uh, cessation of, of his existence with the people as Joshua will take them in. 
But at this point now, when it's talking about the congregation of the children of Israel, this is now talking about the next generation. Remember, all the older generation has died off, remember, over the 40 years in the wilderness. So this is now the younger generation that has grown up during the time in the wilderness. They knew nothing of the life of Egypt and slavery there. These are, are basically a younger generation that grew up uh, as sort of a nomadic existence, just traveling around the desert, living in that way, understanding while they're in the wilderness, but really have grown up there. And they now begin to experience an occasion at Kadesh where it's a very dry time. Again, there's no water for the congregation. And let me just say, that's, that's a legitimate need. That's a great concern. If you're in a desert climate and there is no water source and you've got a huge congregation of people and animals and flocks and herds, that's a real problematic situation. So this is a legitimate crisis that they're facing. The next generation now is doing what? They're experiencing the same testings and the same difficulties that their parents experienced. And now it's their turn. They're beginning to experience some of the exact same challenges that they were not immune to, that their parents experienced prior to them. And again, life comes in seasons. There's a time and a purpose for every season under heaven. The older generation had experienced similar things. Now they are confronted with the same exact problems, the same challenges that their parents had endured in prior years years uh-oh no water what do we do this is a crisis a legitimate problem that is putting pressure upon them and causing fear and concern in their midst verse 3 look what it says they do in response this is they gathered against moses and aaron and the people contended with moses and spoke saying if only we had died when our brethren died before the lord why have you brought us up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we and our animals should die here. You took us through all this, even 40 years in this wilderness, to ultimately just let us perish here at the last part of the 40 years. And why have you made us, verse 5, come out of Egypt to bring us to this, look what they call it, evil place. <laughs> Is this place not a place, this is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. Now, boy, can you just say the apple don't fall far from the tree? I mean, this is the next generation. And here's what's very, really almost somewhat intriguing to think about. Do you see much difference or growth from the younger generation to the prior generation? I, I mean, even the things that they're saying here, you know, uh, if only we had died when our brethren died, you know, maybe referring to the event with Korah and all the deaths that happened then. Why have you brought us up into this wilderness and, and you made us come up out of Egypt? Wait a minute, where did they get all this information? Where did they hear all those facts? Where did they get all these ideas? I'll tell you where they got them from their parents. Because they watched their parents' mannerisms, they watched their parents' way of handling things, they listened and learned and embraced, really, hear me, the sinful and carnal tendencies of their parents. So as they watched their parents gripe and complain and act carnally in the way they conducted themselves in regards to God, and they watched their parents act carnally and sinfully in regards to how they would respond to spiritual authority in their lives and handling things spiritually rather than in the weakness of their flesh and just carnally and disobediently, what do they do? 
bottom line, they basically embrace and adopt the carnal tendencies of their parents. Their parents were complainers. Their parents acted carnally. So they just embrace the same ways and now they're manifesting the exact same mannerisms and temperaments and weaknesses and the same sinful tendencies in the next generation. I'll tell you, this is a great reminder here that parental influence is extremely powerful. Extremely powerful. Whether we want it to be or not, and here's the thing I think we have to remember as parents, much more is caught than is taught. I mean, you can teach the right things and say the right things, but the bottom line is typically it's not what we're saying, but it's what we're doing and it's what our children are observing that typically is going to be the thing that they're going to emulate and they're going to be more prone towards following after and embracing. Because you can say all the right things, you can give all the right information, but kids are going to observe and as they grow up and they observe lifestyles and tendencies and mannerisms, many times they tend to then emulate those patterns and particularly negative and sinful and carnal tendencies. Who would not be able to raise their hand in this room and do not do that, please, to say whether it's in your own family dynamic, maybe the way you grew up, reflecting upon your own parental figure in your life or maybe others that you know, friends, family, and you say, oh, you've got to be kidding me. It's just like, you know, he's, he's just like his father. She's become just like her mother. And we realize that negative, sinful patterns and tendencies a lot of times are embraced tragically by the next generation. And here this next generation is acting exactly the same way with no growth or progress. Now look, the wonderful thing is that can also have a positive effect as well. That godly influence and spiritual influence and not just saying the right thing, but making the hard, righteous and obedient choices to live a right way can also have a very wonderful effect upon our children where they can look and say, yes, my parents are not perfect, but by and large, this is what I saw consistency in godliness and and they can embrace those things and and if you're a, a servant of the lord they'll want to serve the lord and they see you putting a priority on worship and reading your bible and praying then they're probably going to say hey you know what i should put a priority on worship and reading my bible and praying and and if they see you making good obedient choices even when it's hard they'll probably when they're faced with temptation say you know what i know it's hard but, but i watched my parents make good righteous decisions and it paid off and they'll be encouraged and inspired to do the exact same thing. But the important thing is just realizing this reality of the incredible you know, effect that this has had. Here it is 40 years later and this next generation, we, we've seen this pattern. It's now surfacing once again, even in these latter years. Verse 6, look how Moses uh, begins to address this. He's certainly faced this before. So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting and they fell on their faces and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Now, this was a typical pattern when the people would complain or grumble or contend with Moses and challenge him and Aaron, as this happened many times before, uh, they would, this was the right approach. They would go and they would just fall on their face before the Lord. They would just fall in the presence of the Lord looking for God's help and the Lord's direction. How do I handle this? How do I respond to it? And typically when they did that, as we read there, verse six, this was the response is, is the glory of the Lord would be manifest to them. The idea is that the presence of God 
the, the Shekinah glory of God w- would appear to them. And out of that, God would usually then give them instruction. He would tell them how to handle it or what to do. And they would receive guidance from the Lord. So they're on target still. Uh, they do the thing that they've done many years before. And verse 7 tells us, then the Lord spoke to Moses. And this was a typical pattern. And now he gives them instruction what to do with this legitimate need of no water uh, there for the congregation in that desert area at that time. The Lord said to Moses, verse 8, here's God's instruction, very clear. Moses, take the rod. Now, we don't know if that's Aaron's rod, remember, that had budded uh, in the prior chapters, or if it's just the rod that he held as a shepherd. We can guess, but we can't be 100% certain. But he tells him, take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, and then notice this word. I have it circled in my Bible because it's important. Speak to the rock before their eyes and it will yield its water and thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So God gives very clear instructions to Moses. He says, Moses, this is a legitimate need. The people are thirsty. So God compassionately says, look, this is how I want you to resolve the problem. God gives his word to him. He says, look, I'm not going to leave you in the dark. I'm going to make it very clear. This is exactly how you handle it. This is my word. This is my instruction. Follow these instructions, Moses. Everything will work out fine. He says, gather the people together. Speak forth to the rock before their eyes in their presence. And I will miraculously cause that rock to then yield forth water as God had done this before in time past. God would reproduce a miracle of water coming from the rock, demonstrating his glory, his love for the people to provide for them, his power to sustain them and you know, give them whatever they needed. And water would come forth from the rock and it would give drink to the congregation and to all their animals. Verse 9, so Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. All right, he's on target there. He took the rod. He gathered the people together. All right, he's still on target there. Very good. Gathers the assembly before the rock. And then he said to them, wait a minute. He was supposed to talk to the rock. He now talks to them. Here now, you rebels. Houston, we have a problem. The mission has gone off track all of a sudden. He started out on target. He got the people together. He got the rod in his hand. And then what happened? Emotion took over. Human reason took over. And his feelings and his frustration and his humanity took over. And Moses, now, and you listen, you need to give a little grace to the guy. Keep in mind, this is the guy who's, you know, 40 years, he's been taking these people through the wilderness. He's over a hundred plus years old at this point. I mean, this is an old, worn out, very, I mean, and these people, we've seen the way they behaved, right? So, I mean, you were talking about if, if anybody, like, man, somebody, people have been grading on your last nerve for a long time. And again, he's faced with this and he starts out well. He falls on his face. The Lord appears to him, gives him instruction. He starts out well and then just something happens in that moment and he impulsively lets impulse take over and human emotion and frustration and the meekest man of the earth at this moment gets madder than anybody's ever probably been on the planet. And he, this is basically a picture of Moses just wigging out, if that's a real term. He just wigs out at this point. He literally just goes into overdrive and he then says to them there, verse 9, Hear now, you rebels. 
just like your parents, you little you know, rebels of rebels. Must we bring water for you out of this rock? Now, wait a minute. What do you mean you bring water? God brings the water out of the rock. All of a sudden now you're bringing the water, Moses? All of a sudden you get all the glory and you're the one that's got to take care of things. Somehow you, you've taken the place of God in the eyes of the people. Must we bring water? from this rock you can tell he's beginning to slip here then Moses lifted his hand and struck there's the other boo-boo the rock twice with his rod and again you know some commentators say potentially this was maybe Aaron's rod so he now begins to beat the rock two times so if he's doing that and if that's Aaron's budded rod is there like you know almonds and flowers flying all over the place you can picture the you know image of your mind his almonds are spraying all over he's just in frustration smacking this rock now and water notice however verse 11 came out abundantly and the congregation and their animals drank so take notice of this the spiritual leader fails but God's still gracious to his people and God's still kind to his people and that encourages me because there are times let's be very frank when people are in spiritual roles of leadership and authority and, and, and people can do very wrong things abuse their spiritual authority you know you know, you end up finding out at some point in time they're involved in things it comes to the surface there was immorality or you know leadership abuse or, or money being corruptly utilized and yet you look back in hindsight well how well how was all that going on and people are still getting saved and people are still getting ministered to I'll tell you why because God's very gracious and God loves people and even though God may have to deal with people, God's not going to cut off his nose despite his face. God's not that stubborn. God continues to love. So look, the water still comes forth. God still meets the need of the people compassionately because he's a good shepherd. So he compassionately meets the need. The water comes forth for the congregation. Verse 12, it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. And it's almost as if, again, it's almost as you sense God say, uh, Moses, Can you come over here to the woodshed for a few minutes? We, we need to have a little chat. In fact, bring the rod with you. Give it to me now, though. <laughs> Give me the rod now. We need to have a little talk, son. He calls him out and he says, Come here, Moses. And he speaks to him and to Aaron, again, which shows you they were jointly involved, saying to him, verse 12, Because you did not believe me to hollow me in their eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. And this was the water of Meribah because the children of Israel contended with the Lord and he was hallowed among them. Now, I, I can't help, I actually wrote in my Bible there, wow. I mean, do you see what God is telling Moses there? I mean, just keep in mind, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I've given them. You're talking about 80 years. 80 years. This guy has been trekking along with the call of God from all the way back at the burning bush when God called him to be a deliverer, to go to the people, to set them up. I mean, you want to talk about a major disappointment. Can you imagine how his heart must have dropped when he heard, you know what, Moses? Unfortunately, you're no longer going to be able to take the people into the land. The very thing that he had, you know, his whole life ministry and experience had been for in that one moment of error and misrepresentation, 
he lost something that valuable. I mean, that, that is just, I can't imagine how overwhelming that must have been. Now, very clearly, it's pretty evident that God has some pretty strong displeasure and severe discipline because of what Moses has done here. But again, let me pose to you a few thoughts to consider. Why is God so strongly displeased, displeased and so severely disciplining Moses? Well, for a couple reasons. First of all is this. Is Moses deliberately disobeyed God? He deliberately disobeyed God and his clear word which was given to him. Look, this wasn't an issue of, well, why just I wasn't quite sure what the word of the Lord was or what his instruction was. I mean, it wasn't real complicated. Verse 8 gives the word of the Lord to Moses. God's instruction of what to do and how to handle this his way was totally clear. It was completely evident. But yet Moses, in the midst of his frustration and just being overwhelmed and being exasperated, he deliberately disobeys God's clear instruction. And can I just say, that's never a really good thing to do. It's never good to just deliberately, defiantly know clearly what God's instruction is or what God's word says and just say, well, I don't care. I know it says that, but I don't care. I'm kind of mad right now. Or I'm too depressed to do that right now. Or it's too hard to do that. Or, or they're not doing it, so why do I have to do it? And see, we can, in all the different areas of scriptural commands and instructions, know clearly what the Word of God says about something, but have such a strong desire or passion or whatever it may be of what's going on inside of us that we literally, interesting, isn't it? Moses calls them rebels. Isn't it interesting how our sins always look the worst on other people? And how it's so easy for us to identify certain sins in other people. I would say this. A lot of times the very sins it's easiest for us to identify in someone else is because we're very familiar with it ourselves, And that's why we can see it so clearly and so prominently in somebody else's life. Moses had just rebelled against God and yet he's getting mad calling them rebels. <laughs> and he had just, and again, let me say this. This was the younger generation of young people coming up. They're growing. They're still developing in their relationship with the Lord. This is the next generation coming up. God's not angry in this situation. God's extending some grace because just like when you're raising a kid, you give a little extra grace as they're growing up. And hey, they're, they're younger and you expect more as they get older, certainly. And same way with a younger believer. You, know, you, you extend a little more latitude and grace. They're still working some things out. They're a new Christian and they're, you know, they're still figuring things out. So you have a little more patience and grace. God's having patience with the people here. But Moses, if anybody knew better, Certainly by this point he should. He was the leader of the people. He had shepherded multiple generations and yet now he deliberately disobeys God. Secondly, another thing that God was so displeased with is that he's misrepresenting the Lord to and before the people. He's misrepresenting the Lord to the people. He's indicating to the people as God's representative, let's just say it this way, that God's really ticked off right now and God wasn't ticked off. He's indicating to the people that God's somewhat temperamental. Sometimes he just flies off the handle when he just can't take no more. And that somehow he's indicating that that's what he's like as God because he represented God to the people. And as he was misrepresenting the nature and the heart and the character of God because he's irritated in the struggle, God's saying, Moses, what are you doing? You didn't hallow me before their eyes. You didn't set me apart as holy. You're demonstrating and representing the people what you're like in your humanity, not what I'm like. 
And he's misrepresenting the Lord before the very people who are looking to him as an indication of what God is like. And again, can I just say, God takes that really seriously. I think God takes that very seriously for those of us who serve in different roles of spiritual leadership. I I think that's a really serious thing. God forbid, as pastors and leaders, when we misrepresent the Lord and and we give a wrong impression or or a very skewed perspective of what the Lord is really like because of the way we maybe handle something or respond to something. And again, whether that's within a church, and and I think that same sense of onus and pressure should be upon us, especially as men, as leaders in our family. It, 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 it's a, an unhealthy thing when we do that. And I failed there before, but I think God takes that very seriously because the Lord wants us to represent him well. And look, let me just say this. As Christians, that applies to all of us. When you say the word Christian, it says in the book of Acts, they were first called Christians at Antioch, the Bible says. Do you know what the word Christian meant? It implied, it was originally a derogatory term. It was an insult. People were basically saying, these people who are about this way, this, they're like little Christs. That's what the word Christians meant originally. That, that's what they were trying to label people who were early believers in the book of Acts. They're like little Christs. They act like little Jesuses. And so because of that, we need to realize as a Christian, that word implies what we're supposed to be, a follower, one, and then number two, a representative of Christ. And when we claim Christ and represent Christ wrongly, God takes that very seriously. And, and, and it's a very important matter to him. And here Moses is doing that very thing, making a grievous mistake. And as he's doing this, he's acting as if as well. Notice he says, must I bring forth water out of this rock? What's he also doing? He's acting as if he was somehow going to perform the miracle. As if somehow he was the one that did what happened for the people. And I think, again, that's why God is saying to him, because you did not believe me to hollow me in their eyes. In other words, Moses... To hollow me in their eyes would be to allow me to have the glory for that water that came forth out of the rock. And God says, I'll share my glory with no one. And here Moses is saying, shall I have to bring forth this water from the rock from you again? Wait a minute. God's saying, you, don't, you can't do anything, Moses. What? You're taking glory that belongs to me. Letting the people look to you and acting as somehow you have something to contribute here. And as God's being robbed of his glory, this was a very displeasing thing to him that Moses, again, did not believe God to let God deal with the situation the way God wanted to deal with the situation. And I can't help but to wonder, let me just say this, I can't help but to wonder if that's because in Moses' mind, in his mind and from his perspective, he's convinced in his mind at this point, God has got to be thoroughly angry at these people. How could he not be angry at these people? And look at the way they're behaving. Look what they're doing. And he's, I think, wrongly assuming that God is very angry at someone when the reality was in that moment, God was not angry with them in the way that Moses felt anger towards them. And I, I need to say this. I think sometimes we have to be careful because sometimes I can get, you can get very frustrated with people, very angry with people. And then we relate to people in such a way where we feel it's justified because we feel like, yeah, but, and the reason I'm so angry at you is because God's so angry at you. And we convey that, we reflect that when the reality is, how do you know that? We don't know that. I don't always know what the heart of the Lord is towards someone. Maybe I'm frustrated because I lack patience and I lack compassion and I lack empathy when really the Lord's saying, look, I just, I'm, I'm still trying to be patient with him here. I'm still trying to be gracious. It doesn't mean he approves of something, 
But again, the Bible says that our God is long-suffering. And we have to remember that. He suffers long, and then he's still kind. And here God was trying to be long-suffering with this younger generation. Again, these are, they're, they're learning. They're going through the same testings of their parents that they went through. But, he, but, but here's the kicker and the thing that I believe ultimately was the thing that caused the greatest result of this consequence for Moses is this, is that Moses doing what he does here where he strikes the rock instead of speaking to the rock, he ruins and mars in a horrific way a picture of Christ and salvation. Again, let me refresh our memories. It's going back quite a ways, but remember Exodus chapter 17? There, the, one of the times back earlier on when there was no water and God gave instruction to Moses then and he said to him then, Moses, I want you, Exodus 17 said, to strike the rock. And Moses struck the rock and water came forth, correct? Now, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4 tells us in hindsight, New Testament commentary, that that rock that followed around the wilderness, Paul says that rock was Christ. In other words, it was, a, it was a, a type. It was a picture like many of the things we've talked about through the Old Testament. These were types and pictures. God was always foreshadowing Jesus and salvation, whether it's in the sacrifices or the laws or the experiences like this that would happen in the wilderness. So see, the first time God said, strike the rock and water came forth to meet the thirst and the need of the people in that situation so that they were spared from being destroyed. And now this time, what does God say? God says, speak to the rock. You don't have to strike it, Moses. The rock was already struck once the first time and water came forth. Now the people have the same need. They have a need. But this time I want you to speak to the rock and water will come forth to quench their thirst. What was God doing? God was trying to create a picture thinking of more than those in just the moment. And here's the thing that we have to always remember. Sometimes we get our hand on something and make a mess and we have no re realization of the fact that, look, this is much bigger than just this little specific instance that's going on at the given moment. God was looking through human history and God was saying, there's a much bigger picture at stake here, son. And see, what God was trying to do was create a beautiful picture where just like Jesus, Jesus was struck once, Christ, the rock, he was smitten once. He suffered and was struck with the wrath of God and died upon the cross for our sins. And as a result of that, now the need of the water of life is freely available. And now if someone needs to receive that, Jesus doesn't have to be struck and smitten a second time. Now all somebody needs to do is to speak to Jesus in faith and to express their need and the water of life, the forgiveness of sins will usher forth freely to anyone. And see, if Moses would have followed this as God asked him to follow it, a beautiful picture of Jesus would have been portrayed. Struck once, but never needing to be struck again. Now all mankind need to do is speak to him in faith and the water of life would come forth and satisfy their deep thirst and spiritual need. A picture of Christ and salvation. But by Moses getting so angry and not following God and just striking a rock and being so upset, what does he do? He mars the picture. He ruins the picture. And as a result of that, I think God took that all the more seriously and as a result of that, you see this tremendous consequence coming out of here. I'll tell you, th this is just a reminder as we look at this, as I said, a couple things of the danger of unrestrained anger. 
You know, the danger of unrestrained anger where, you know, the danger of willful disobedience where in a given moment we can become so frustrated, so impulsive, so angry and upset over something where we justify behaving in a way that is completely, as we've talked about, contrary to scripture, it is complete direct disobedience of what we know to be right. And the reality is, is the consequence can be extremely far reaching, extremely far reaching. One moment. Look how much is lost. One moment and so much, again, and remember, Jesus said to whom much is given, much is required. The more will be required. So as the result of that here, Moses finds himself dealing with this tremendous letdown. I mean, just I can't imagine the weight of what that must have been. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, because you did not believe me to hollow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given to them. Now, let me say this in light of this account here. Here's the thing that I admire about Moses. You want to talk about tremendous letdown? I mean, the result of the fact that, oh my goodness, you mean my failure is going to have that far-reaching consequence? But here's the thing I admire about Moses and shows the man of God that he was and the love for the Lord and the spiritual maturity, the giant of spiritual maturity. At that moment when Moses hears, Moses, sorry, you just forfeited what could have been God's best for you in that given situation. Uh, And and Moses, that experience that you were holding on to, that plan is not going to come to pass. Moses could have in that moment gotten very frustrated, right? depressed, discouraged. Well, that's it. If I can't bring the people into the land after 40 years of taking these people through the wilderness and one time I blow my top and lose my temper and I can't go into the land and you're going to take that away from me, that's it. I'm taking my marbles. I'm going home and forget you, God, and forget this whole thing. And and right, he he could have responded probably the way a lot of us might have responded and thought, you have got to be kidding me. These people complained 50 times. And one time I finally at my, you know, 120th birthday was so exhausted with them. I just, and you're going to take that away from me now? You're going to let me experience that severe of a consequence? What kind of a God are you? You're not a, and he could have began to question God and challenge God, to get angry at God, to get bitter at God. He could have got depressed and fallen into self-pity. But what does Moses do? In humility, in meekness and faith, He accepts the sovereignty of God. He relies upon the goodness of God. And he just keeps doing what he's doing. He just keeps loving and serving the people. He just keeps walking with God. He just keeps following the course that he's on. And rather than deviating or turning to the right or the left, or just letting it ultimately just destroy and shipwreck him completely, he just continues on and keeps walking forward in faith. And here's the encouraging thing. As you read this, because maybe some of you are reading that and thinking, well, if Moses ain't thinking that, I'm kind of thinking that myself about God. That's pretty cruel. That's pretty rotten. If anybody deserved that, poor guy deserved to get into the land. I'm voting for Moses on that one. I'm just, that's one I'm going to have to challenge God on when I get to heaven. Here, let me talk to you about the grace of God for a minute. Because Moses ultimately gets into the land. He ultimately gets into the land. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 17. And I'm thinking perhaps this is all the Spirit of God wanted us to talk about tonight, so that's okay. Since he's God and I'm not. 
Matthew chapter 17. Right, Moses, you're not going to get into the promised land. Sorry, you're not going to be able to take them in. Ultimately, we'll follow out the account and Moses will be taken up. God will let him, in a sense, look over the land. And then that's it. Moses passes off the scene. Joshua ultimately takes them in the land. And let me say this in connection to that. Even despite Moses' failure, what does God do? He overrules and still paints a beautiful picture. Because Moses doesn't bring them into the land, but Joshua brings them into the land. What does Moses represent? The law. What does Joshua mean? Yahweh is salvation. It's the same terminology where we ultimately get Jesus from. So Moses, the law, couldn't bring people in to the promised experiences of God, keeping laws and following laws. That never works to experience genuine spiritual life. But Joshua, Jesus, the Savior, is the one ultimately through the Spirit and just walking with him and the grace of God is the one who takes us in to experience the promises of God. So uh, to me, that's just beautiful that even in the midst of failures, God's plan was not rocked. God said, yeah, yeah, Mo wow, Moses really blew it, but God didn't go, wow, now I never planned on that one. How am I going to bring this all back around now? God, you know, that's wonderful because maybe you've made a major mess or had some really tragic mistakes, but, but listen, the reality is, is, I promise you this, you've not rocked God's world. God's more than able to still ultimately accomplish his purposes and plans and our greatest failures do still not frustrate and stop the plans of God. Our bad decisions, our foolish mistakes, our moments like Moses where maybe we just wig out and the bottom drops out and we just get caught up in the flesh or the emotion of a moment. Uh, even those things, God still uses that. But look at Matthew 17 here. Here's what I want you to see. It says, now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. So here is what we often call the transfiguration of Jesus. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, he brings them up onto a mount, and I just want to say this, where is Jesus at at this time geographically? Do you know what, what country he's in? He, what country is he in? Where is he at? He's in the promised land. Okay? Keep that in there. He's in the promised land. Jesus is in the promised land. The Canaan land with Peter, James, and John. He takes them up. He's transfigured before them. The glory of the Lord is radiating out of him in his, in his humanity. They're seeing him transfigured in their very presence. Verse 3, look at this. And behold, imagine that, Moses... And Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make your three tabernacles. In other words, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So here they are, the transfigure happen, transfiguration happens, and look who shows up, steps out of the spiritual and eternal realm into the natural realm of the moment and appears in the midst of the transfiguration experience in the land of Israel, in the Canaan land, Moses and Elijah. Here's what I want you to see. God says, Moses, I'm sorry, you, you've lost, you've forfeited, you're not going to be able to get into the land, but Jesus sneaks him in later on. To me, that's the grace of God. And the grace of God is found in Jesus. And it's Jesus who all these years later still honors that, you know, here, here's Moses, 
takes him and steps out of the eternal dimension and here Elijah and Moses, again, is a part of the whole plan of Christ and his ministry, but now here's Moses and where is he? He's in the land. Uh, Again, what a tremendous reminder of how the grace of God and through Christ, that grace comes. The Bible says that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth through Jesus Christ and that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. What an incredible thing that the Bible records this for us all these years later that Moses, who looked like something was a major catastrophe, yes, he experienced the consequences. He did what we sow, we reap. And he did experience those consequences, but God's grace is way bigger than any consequence, any mistake, any fruit of our failure. And Jesus has a way of working by his grace to still mercifully meet our heart's desires and restore the things the locusts eat away and still do incredible things and to take us and to bring us into the fullness of his blessing and his grace. Let's stand together. Let's pray. Let's just...